Hello, everyone. You are listening to Solving for X, a podcast that brings government's top thinkers and innovators together to reimagine how the federal workforce works. I believe we become what we practice. And if our nation's employees have the best work experiences, our public customers will have the best experiences too. We're on a journey to bridge digital and workforce transformation and how that experience or X will impact government services, careers, and more. Welcome to the future of work. What does X mean to you? Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Nina Bianchi, joined as always by my co-host, Chris Crisp. We're super excited about today's topic and it brings us joy to hold space for this. Chris, hi there. What's on the agenda today? Thanks a lot, Nina. So, yep. So today uh, we are very fortunate and that we are going to be speaking with Eric Anderson, who is the Chief Administrative Officer for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, uh, which is a part of the Department of Homeland Security. And he has a wealth of experience in the realm. He's been with the government for some time, a lot of leadership experience, but certainly um, a lot of thoughts on, on the topic uh, of employee experience, right, and customer experience and how that translates over to the workforce experience. So really excited to get this kicked off, uh, especially with the question, we're gonna get, just get right into this with, with Eric, starting with our first question, a question that I love to ask all of our uh, you know, panelists, all of our podcast uh, folks is, um, is this question here. So there has been a lot of discussion about the future of work. If we had a crystal ball, what do you think the future holds for government jobs when it comes to digital and workforce transformation? Hey, thanks a lot for, for having me, Nina and, and Chris. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I wish I had that crystal ball because I don't know if I have a great answer for you because we are in a time of transition, as you know. Um, I feel like every day is uh, we're experiencing a new challenge, uh, not just because of the pandemic, but also adapting to it and trying to find a way uh, to be successful through it. Um, but with all challenges, I believe that there are opportunities as well. And I think we're in the midst of, um, of a fantastic opportunity in that. I think the pandemic has forced the government to uh, push ahead and embrace technology um, maybe a little bit faster than some were prepared to, uh, to do. Um, still trying to figure out this hybrid environment but as we do that, and as we rely on technology even more, like you said, we still have to be mindful of the employee experience. Um, they're learning just as much as, as, uh, as the, the leaders are learning and adapting at the same time. And so um, I think that there is, um, I, I have hope that, um, that we manage to continue to rely on technology, but find ways to be intentional in connecting with employees, uh, making sure we don't miss out on some of the, those opportunities that we had pre-pandemic where everyone was coming into an office. I just think we have to be intentional with our communications and our connections. Eric, thank you so much. And I'm looking into your crystal ball and I'm seeing some words come through in clarity here. And I'm hearing you say learning, adapting, embracing technology intention. Can you share a story of what that looks like in the daily work that you see and you live every day? Uh, yeah. Um, 
I, um, I was in a unique role where um, the current position that I'm in now as the chief administrative officer, I was uh, asked to, to serve in this role uh, two years ago, almost. So it was in the middle of the pandemic. And um, that was a, a unique challenge because it was a new position to me. It was an entirely new staff that I didn't know, I didn't work with before. And so I had to think, wow, how am I going to lead these people that I have not met, that uh, I don't have the same experience that they have? And one of the first things that, that really dawned on me is, well, um, I need them to, to get to know who I am before I could ever expect them to share with me who they are and what they're about. Wow. And so I became very intentional about trying to connect with them as much as possible using technology and teams and video chat wherever possible. Um, sure, I met with them on a larger scale, but I tried to meet with all of my employees individually just to uh, see, see them as a person first than as an employee. And so I don't know how much of a, of a story that was, but that was certainly uh, a challenge to really try to emphasize that in the beginning before I could have any aspirations that I could be an effective leader for them. So when you're doing that, when you're, when you're purposely trying to make these connections and you're purposely trying to get them to know who you are, so that I imagine in turn, you know who they are, right? Hopefully they are opening up a bit and and telling some of their stories as well. So when you're doing this, are you intentionally listening to their wants, their hopes, so that then you can adjust work based around that? We talk about telework, for example, you mentioned that telework is, is something that has is, is become more of a thing. So, but is that because you're listening to your employees and what it is that they want? As much as I'd like to say that, you know, I was listening to them first, a lot of employees didn't don't want to share something with somebody that they don't know, even if it's a work need or even if it's a work desire. And so if I can just back up just a little bit, it was so important for me and not because it's about me or my ego or anything like that. It was let me share a little bit about who I am. Let me share a little bit about what my values are and what's important to me. Because once they hear and see and feel that sincerity, whether they share something about themselves or not, it makes them, I think, much more willing to then share what those needs and wants are. And so, uh, and then of course, once they do open up to you, especially as a leader, it's so important that you not only listen, but then you act upon it. And in some cases, folks might ask for something that you don't have the authority to give away. Well. That doesn't mean you dismiss it. It means that you tell them the why. I think too often we forget to tell people why we're making the, the decisions or why we're not making the decisions, um, but then doing what you can to try to accommodate things that they are asking for, which are appropriate. Eric, you're saying, you know, hearing, feeling, building trust. Is it, is it trust, building trust with the employees? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, one, uh, you said the word perfectly, trust. I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, and I think in any good relationship, you have to give trust in order uh, uh, before someone's willing to give their trust back to you. Um, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's all about trust because if I don't trust you, 
then I'm not going to trust you with my thoughts. I'm not going to trust you with my feelings. I'm not going to trust you even with work-related requests because, you know, you might squash them. You might uh, stomp on me in the process. And we've all been there. We've all felt that to some degree. And I think it's so important, especially when you're going through some type of organizational change or if you transition to a new uh, position, that you start off that relationship with trust. Um, sometimes employees will abuse that trust. Um, but I think nine times out of 10 employees, if they see that you're starting a relationship with trust, they're going to run with that. They're going to make you look so smart for trusting <laughs> them that you're going to look like a genius. And, and it's not, it's just, it's just a great way to start a relationship with an employee with trust. So of course, so when it comes to trust and building that relationship, and, and, and getting that going. Of course, you can imagine all the, the snowball effect of what that can do, you know, for your organization. Um, but when you improve upon that relationship, hopefully as a result, you're improving morale. You know, and hopefully as a result, your employees are happier. But in your specific organization and with your employees, how do you think those things impact the customer, right? And the customer experience when it comes to your mission? Oh, it absolutely has an effect. If your employees feel trusted and they feel like you as a leader are trustworthy, there's going to be ripple effects for the, the customers that they interact with. First, with customers internal to your organization, that's going to carry over. That sentiment is going to carry over. And of course, especially with a public-facing job, uh, like so many of, of my colleagues in, in citizenship and immigration services have, it's going to carry over to the public as well. Um, and I think that that is, that is really important in terms of being able to deliver good customer service. And we have rules and regulations that tell us what we can and cannot do. There's no denying that. But that doesn't mean that we can't uh, meet the, the folks that we deal with and see them as people and treat them as well as we would want to be treated ourselves. All right, Eric. So yeah, that's, a, that's a really good point there. And, and so that the whole connecting that to the employee experience, to your customer experience, um, you know, we can, we can go many different paths on that, but I'd like to push you a little bit and, and really get, you know, maybe more of a specific example of, of maybe something you've seen in your organization, something that you've done to help your employees, to help them with their morale, listening to them saying, okay, hey, we'll, we'll do that or we'll implement that. And then seeing how that connects to their customer. You know, I don't know if you have an example of something like that you can provide. I, I do. Um, I, I can't say that it's a, a finished product, but one of the things that I started with, uh, with my office um, two years ago is, um, I mentioned before, like I, I want to make sure that we plan for the culture that we want. Um, culture happens whether we plan for it or not, so you might as well plan for it. And so I had this idea where I had been a part of so many strategic plans throughout my career. Some of them have been fantastic. Some of them get put on a shelf and they gather dust and they don't become living documents. But it, it occurred to me that to really transform an organization's culture or morale is to actively state where you think you are and where is it that you wanna be. And then identify what is it that you need to do to get it to where it is that you want to be and to actually come up with metrics and measures, which is something that 
I'm sure other smarter people than me have done before. I just haven't seen it. And so, so you're, I worked so you're with, identifying a gap. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what it sounds like you're doing. Okay. Exactly. Identifying a gap. And while I introduced this idea to my team, I said, this is not, I'm not sitting here with the answers. I don't know the answers, but collectively we do. And so um, I started us down that process where I solicited input from all of our supervisors, all of our non-supervisors to say, describe the culture that you want. And some people had examples that they pulled from other uh, organizations as well. Some had never really had a really positive culture, or at least an area that focused on it. And I said, let's just not hope for it to happen. Let's actively plan for it. And so just to give you a couple of examples that came from it, uh, one of the things that I have a meeting on this afternoon is something that we call an, em an employee advisory council, where what it is, is a, it's a group of volunteers of non-supervisors across multiple different directorates and branches that get together periodically to talk about topics um, that are either of a concern or maybe opportunities for improvement. Yeah, and then crazy. they share that with leadership. And they're going to tell me today, what are some things that they're working on that they've either either tackled or want to solve? Or in some cases where they don't have that authority to do, they're going to put it on my plate to then do. And it's, so it's a way of making sure that people feel just as comfortable communicating up as I might feel communicating down. So it's not a finished product, but it's something that we're really proud about, that this is a living document that, like it or not, every single year, we're gonna talk about our culture, what progress we've made, and that gap on how we can get to, the, to being a, you know, the office of choice, the office where everyone is trying to come to and that nobody wants to leave. Eric, when we were planning for this conversation, this podcast, you had mentioned something, you had said, you know, we cannot afford to dismiss culture. And I'm wondering, as you're leading these initiatives and exploring how to improve the ways you serve and connect, as well as how employees are connecting and serving one another, how have you had to justify the time and resources for this work to other leaders who maybe think they can afford to dismiss culture? That's a fantastic question. Um, it's hard in the government uh, um, to really prioritize culture and morale because anyone that's familiar with government and budget planning, I'm not going to nerd out, but we know that we have to justify every single dollar that we're asking for. And it's usually year to year. And it's hard to be able to say, hey, I need all this money for my missions and operations, but I also need money to make sure that my employees are trained and have time to go on details and have growth opportunities as well when every dollar is being accounted for. And when it comes to culture and morale, what we do today might not have a tangible benefit that's measurable within the next six months or even years. Sometimes it takes years to fully feel the effect of meaningful change. And so it's not easy. I wish I had uh, a secret formula that I can share with you. But when I have gone before leadership and colleagues and shown that, you know, right now my office has a 95% retention rate, we have 5% vacancies, which is pretty good. Uh, it's better that than most offices good. that I've dealt with. That is a healthy sign. Does that mean everything is great? No, absolutely not. 
But, um, you know, being able to point to things like that and to point to how much internal uh, development and promotions that we've so had in the office. you're starting to measure. And this yeah. is a kind of question to follow up there. You know, how might we begin to measure culture without destroying it? Let's just be honest. The government sometimes can overregulate and make it. <laughs> too burdensome. However, measuring to demonstrate that ROI, even if it takes a year. And, two and years. I, think, I think that's where trust between you as a leader and your colleagues and your leadership really comes into, into play where they can say, hey, I may not fully understand what it is that you're asking for or doing, but I trust that you have a plan. In the government, if you're familiar, we have the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, which is every single yes. year. Um, some people love it. Some people hate it. It's not the perfect survey, but it's the one that is closest to telling us how we're doing as an organization, not just operationally, because employees can say, do I think my leadership's doing a great job? And so I love that survey. Um, and I use that survey as a barometer to say, are we trending in the right direction? Yeah. Uh, are we not? Are we stagnant? When I, was, when I was at the FDA in one year, we saw a 10% increase in positive domains that we had assessed as focus areas. And it was the very first step towards measurement. And it was amazing because I said, yes, these, these investments in learning labs and upskilling and mobility and details, look at how it's paying off. And it was in the FEVs. Um, I think the quest to measure more often is on the table right now. So using FAS as the baseline, but also pulsing or pulling more often. It, that's a fantastic point because I've done that internally. There's nothing stopping you from getting um, a survey monkey or some other tool that you have that can allow for anonymous survey. Because frankly, in my mind, surveying staff once a year is not enough because I want to get in real time, how are we doing? Because when people take the FEVs, the lag time before I get the actual results of how my office is doing is months. And that's not that helpful. So, um, but just getting back to, to one other uh, point earlier about having trust with leadership above you. Throughout my career, I've really, um, I dive into the FEVs, I analyze it, and I make sure I use that to show leadership, hey, you know, this organization was really at the at the bottom of the list in terms of culture and morale and employee retention, and now we're surging. That's evidence. That's evidence that you're doing something right, and there's a healthier organization now than what there was. And so that's what I've found to be successful. But when dollars are tight, usually operation uh, wins over culture and morale. And Eric, you bring up you bring up evidence. And, and so I think there's, there's certainly been some good things here, but are we not, so uh, are we not listening? So because, because an employee, let's just say, an employee decides to head out. So you know what, this isn't for me for X, Y, Z reasons. Okay. Are we still listening to them as they head out? Are we having a conversation? Right. I think the question, do we even ask, are we listening on exit to understand? Yep. yep. That's, I, I, you would think that'd be highly relevant, Eric. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. So, yeah, that's a great point. And, and I'll tell you, at least in my experience where I've had some say, 
Uh, not only do we do exit interviews for every employee, even if they're retiring, even if they're getting their dream job, there is information to be gathered about why is it that you're leaving? Because it's not always yes. as simple as I got a promotion. There might have been other reasons that caused them to look for a job in the first place. Well, Sometimes well, you find out. Yeah, well, how do you get them to open up about it? How do you get them comfortable enough to bring up other things other than, you know, I got this great job, but, you know, you, you get them to say, but hey, well, are there things that could have been, you know, what do you do about things like that? So the benefit of an exit interview, and it is most often people have nothing to lose by being honest, but there's an additional step that I try to take, and I encourage every organization to do the same thing, is to do a stay interview. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, every couple of years, but to at least check in with staff uh, who are not leaving and to say, hey, how are things going? And ask exit-like questions to somebody to see if they have a foot out the door or not. And when you're That's doing brilliant. things like that, people are more likely to assume that you have good intentions, that you're actually trying to get them to stay rather than wait for them to announce that they're leaving but you still have some resistance where someone's like, I don't want to tell you what I'm thinking because you might use that against me. That still happens, but that's where trust and communication, if not over communication is the way to, if you establish that as your baseline and do things like stay interviews and exit interviews, you're increasing your chances of getting honest feedback. And that's what it's all about is just getting honest feedback so you can make the necessary changes to improve the organization, not just for that individual, but whoever's coming in behind him or her. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Nina has a follow-up. I just wanna bring up that, that really resonates with me for sure. And just within our organization, for example, we were a few months back, uh, we were starting to lose some, some of our top talent, the smartest people in our round here in, the, in our field of technology. And, you know, I, I decided, for example, to just take it upon myself to just, just talk to them and understand, well, hey, what's going on here? And what are the things, you know, all the things that we've talked about here? And I found a trend. And, and one of those trends was that they, they simply did not want to be dictated that they had to be in the office so many days a week. And that they just didn't, they didn't have to deal with that. In, in the realm that we're in, in this field, when you go look at the private sector, even some other forward-thinking government organizations, they don't have to come into the office. Now, if they want the choice, that's great. They love that flexibility. Um, but that was a big thing that we saw. And another thing was remote work. They didn't, they didn't even have to move for the jobs that they got. They could stay right there in their own home. They didn't have to you know, relocate. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm really resonating with what, with what you're saying there. And the stay interview thing, that's, that's awesome. I think that's great. And uh, that actually gives me uh, an idea of perhaps what to do here. <laughs> can I can I throw in one one more suggestion? And I wish I could take credit for it. It was my my last boss, best boss I've ever had. He started doing something where he would do uh, a weekly email to to the entire office, and he made sure that the email was never about work. It was always about what was going on in his life or more importantly, maybe something that he read or learned to show, hey, I'm not a finished product. So this is a, a senior executive saying that I'm still learning, I'm still growing, I'm sharing something personal. Sometimes they were short, sometimes that they were long. And so I've copied that uh, and I found such tremendous success in it because it shows an approachability. And exit interviews are great, stay interviews are great, 
but there's so much more that we ha- we can do day in and day out as leaders to make ourselves approachable. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not approachable, then people aren't going to cross that threshold into your office to tell you about an opportunity, a problem, whether they're thinking about leaving or not. And I know virtually we may not have office thresholds, but I try to instill on my leaders and my staff that make yourself approachable. You will find so much more information if people feel comfortable to reach out to you and tell you what is going on. And so it used to be, hey, is your office door open or closed? And you'd hear leaders say, oh, my office door is always open. But if people didn't feel safe or comfortable crossing that threshold, then it didn't matter whether your office door was open or closed. And so it's doing the big things, but also doing the the daily or weekly little things that make people feel, I feel safe. I feel like I can come to you and tell you about a problem or opportunity, and you're going to have my best interests at heart. Previously, Eric, again, we were chatting, you, I asked, what are two words to describe yourself as a leader? And you said, without ego. And I hope it's okay. I'm bringing this up in front of everyone who's listening today. I think that mentality, that mindset, even earlier when you were saying, I don't know the answers, I ask my employees what they need and they tell me. And what does that mean for your leadership persona? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm sure there's some people, uh, I hope my wife's not hearing, she might disagree with that without ego. <laughs> that is what I aspire to be. Um, obviously, everyone has a little bit of an ego, but honestly, as much as possible, I, I try to put that ego aside. Um, uh, I'll even tell you, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to become a senior executive because I saw a lot of examples of SESers that just, they led with their titles, they led with their egos, they had to be the smartest person in the room. And I'm like, that is not a recipe for success. I tell my Mm-mm. team, if I'm the smartest person in the room, we're in trouble, all right? <laughs> or, or, you know, some of us are redundant. And so um, I, it's something that I strive to be mostly because I wanna be approachable. I want people to feel comfortable where where they can, they can come to me. And so, um, Yes, I have a title. Yes, I use it if I absolutely need to. But for the most part, I want to lead without a title. Because in my view, and this may sound hokey, but it's the honest truth, I'm no different from anyone in my organization. Regardless of what grade I am versus what grade they are, we are all just important. We're just doing different jobs. And we may be seeing things from different perspectives. That doesn't make anyone's perspective better or worse, right or wrong. I just want to take it as, hey, I may be sitting in this this position and I have certain responsibility and authority that I must do, but for the most part, I am no different and I am no better than anybody else. And I think that leads to people feeling very comfortable speaking up and saying, hey, Eric, I think you're wrong. And now let me tell you why. Hopefully they're doing it respectfully, but I don't want to be surrounded by people that tell me what I want to hear because that is a recipe for absolute disaster. That's what, you know, and I would say I align with your leadership philosophy and practice a hundred percent. That's why we're on this podcast today together with Chris and all the folks that we are having on this show have that 
theme and, and mindset flowing through them, what's the risk of not moving in that direction? So let's just say we have a leader who, you know, triple stack degree, the highest profile title you could imagine, extremely confident telling folks what to do. They know they've been around the block 30 years. They know, they know the answers. What's the risk in employee and customer experience? Like what, what could, what harm could that cause? Number one, uh, you have to have significant confidence to question anything that they're doing or saying. Um, and even if you know that what they're saying or doing might be incorrect or they might not have all the information, chances are you're just going to sit on that. And I think it leads to organizational mistakes, number one. But if I may add on, I think there's an even bigger negative impact is that it has a chilling uh, influence on everyone around them. It's hard to develop yourself when you know your boss or your leader is has to be the smartest one in the room. They have to have all the answers, and um, you know people are afraid to speak up. That's going to put a ceiling on anyone's growth potential, and so I think it could lead to burnout. Um, I know it leads to burnout, but also it leads to good employees looking elsewhere. And I'll tell you, one of my things, I, you know, I've, I've worked for a wonderful agency and I've done a lot of things and there have been jobs that have looked really great. And there have been other jobs that I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if I want to do that, but I have learned, I would rather take a job that doesn't look as exciting. If I respect that leader, that person that's running that organization, I'm attracted to good leaders. And I think there's a lot of people who feel the same way. And so Leaders like that, um, that have to be the smartest in the room, they're going to be successful, but only for so long. Eventually, they're going to inhibit the growth of those below them, and they're going to be scratching their head saying, why did that person leave? Sometimes for a lateral job, sometimes for a job that might be even lower in grade, but it happens, and it happens way too frequently. Well, you know, Eric, a big part of what we're doing here, a lot of the conversation that we're having here on this podcast is certainly around how do we inspire people to want to be a part of the government and to want to continue to contribute their skill set to what it is that the government does, you know, for this country. And, and so, you know, the topic of having to be the smartest person in the room, I can relate to that as well. We're especially in the, in the realm that we're in with, with being at the, you know, cutting edge tech, you, you have chief engineers, you know, you have, you have people that are the PhDs uh, that find themselves in, in leadership positions and, and, and they still want to hold on to that technical knowledge. And, and I don't blame them, you know, it's how, it's how they, they, they grew up in the world, you know, and, and it's how they uh, probably, you know, got up in the morning and thought, yes, I'm gonna learn something new. I'm gonna be smart about this topic. But I, what I'm hearing from you, and, and at least what I think I am, is that we, we need to pivot a bit away from that. If you find yourself in a leadership position, uh, no longer should you try uh, to, to know every technical answer. You really need to allow your employees to learn and to grow and to have the answers. And that's kind of what I'm hearing from you. And, and that I you're listening. It, it, exactly, exactly. I, I, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head. And just like I was saying earlier about, I try to lead without a title. It's also important to let go of some of that subject matter expertise. And I'll say for two reasons. Number one, and this has been a struggle for me too, because to get to the position that I, I'm in today, 
I was a subject matter expert in a couple of fields, and that was it. That was part of my identity. But every time you transition, you need to let go of some of that identity or subject matter expertise in order to fully focus on what that next position is. And so, just as my recommendation is lead without a title, I would also say get used to letting go of that expertise because number one, that expertise that I had 10, 15, 20 years ago, guess what? It may not be as relevant today as it was back then. And in the technology world, that's definitely true because of how rapidly things are changing. But even if that was not the case, it's so important for me to be able to let go of that subject matter expertise so I don't stifle the growth of those around me that need that opportunity to become subject matter experts themselves. And so I, I think it's just, it, it's a mistake. It's a mistake we see too frequently that leaders just don't wanna let go. And it's because they're wrapped up with their identity and their expertise. And generally those are the ones that find it harder to retire when they're retirement eligible because their whole life has been wrapped up with that identity. And so the more I can try to get away from that subject matter expertise and that identity, my hope is that it will make me um, a better leader for those around me, but it also will help. So in case I get moved to another mm -hmm. organization that I have no knowledge about, I should be so high up that I'm not doing that subject matter day-to-day -day stuff. My job is to lead people. And that's, I think, what trips up a lot of leaders. What comes up for me, Eric, as you're sharing, it's what some organizational psychologists and definitely business leaders would call a beginner's mindset as it relates to leadership. So for those out there listening and feeling like they identify and want to learn more, I think the beginner's mindset, and it's a practice, it's a practice as any other role practice would be. So. Eric, such an incredible conversation, you know, talking about psychological safety, trust, new generation of leadership and government, and how we are, all of us, all of us who are on this podcast and all of the folks that we work with day to day, truly shaping what culture looks like in government. So I think we're part of the movement. We're moving this forward. So Eric, as we close today, I'd like to ask one question to get everyone thinking as we wrap, but you know, if you could wave a magic wand and make one thing happen today to advance our movement, all of us, what would it be? I wish I had a lot more time. This is a great question. So I'm going to be kicking myself later on today saying, oh, why didn't I say this or that? <laughs> it's okay. You can uh, send us an email too, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, You'll just have to have me on again. That's all. Now, I, I think it's, if I had to pick one, I would just get back to trust. And I know it, I, I do executive coaching and I do exercise with people about, you know, let's, let's name your values because I think it's so important for not only you to know your values, but also as a leader to be able to share those values with the people that you're working with. And I say that because so often people want to put trust. It's near the top of everyone's value list. But I don't know in my experience that we actively work towards it as much as we should. Um, I, I will just end with just this one little 
uh, story. I, it always bothered me at the beginning when telework was starting to become a thing where people would be like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't trust you yet. I know I just hired you, but you're going to have to work for me for several years or a year before uh, I can allow you to start teleworking. That's, that's sad. And, <laughs> and, and it always drove me crazy, especially in cases where someone had already teleworked for another organization and you just hired them. You, you just selected them as your number one draft pick. And now you're like, but now you have to start all over again. And now you have to show and prove your trust to me. And that never sat well with me. And I've carried that with me where it's just like, let's start our relationships with trust. And let's be amazed at how many people run with that trust and make you look smart for doing that. If we could just start there, I think, you know, leadership in the government would take off. And I think what we provide uh, internally, as well as our for our customers, would just grow exponentially. And I think that's the number one thing I'd pick. Love it. That's going to do it for today's episode of Solving for X. What's your big takeaway from today's episode? What new learning can you share with your teams? Before you leave, please follow Solving for X wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, listener reviews have a real impact. Consider leaving feedback so others can find our show. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time on Solving for X. Solving for X.